guys. PA system sounds wacky. Is that better? Hello, gentlemen. Good morning to you. <clears throat> Good to see you. Is this on? It is? Okay. The PA system sounds a little wacky this morning. No, this, this sounds okay. Maybe it's just my head. Yeah. Staying up too late last night or something. Well, gentlemen, <clears throat> you know that since we're talking about sex today, that... Uh, I got an amen over here. It is a sign of your age that instead of giving you the sex talk before spring break, we give it during spring break when everybody's away. Uh, so, uh, sorry about that. But it is a very important uh, chapter in the Bible. And amazingly, Deuteronomy, with its ancient rules and regulations, gives us several hints of, uh, to wisdom in marital relationships and sexual relationships that are going on in 2011. It's just amazing how helpful it is. I think you'll see as we study it together. Uh, we're into chapter 22, verse 13. Two weeks ago, we studied 22, 1 through 12. And last week, we studied chapters 20 and 21 on blood and guts. Uh, so now we're back to sex in uh, chapter 22, verses 13 through 30. Let's read it. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders... I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. Yet this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman. Because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel, and she shall be his wife, he may not divorce her all his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house." So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city. And the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. 
so you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Because he met her in the open country, and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. Thus ends the reading of God's word. God help us to understand (laughs) and obey his word. Now, obviously, you can tell, before we dig into the details of the text, you can tell that sex and marriage is very important to Israel. Uh, You get the ultimate punishment for violation of many of these stipulations of the covenant. And remember, we're in the section of Deuteronomy where the general commandments, the Ten Commandments, are now being specifically stipulated. And this is obviously the Seventh Commandment being stipulated in more detail. In other words, God is saying through Moses, this is what I mean when I say thou shalt not commit adultery. And now he gives us the meaning of the Seventh Commandment, just like Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what God means when He said, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not even look lustfully at a woman. And you shall not divorce her for any cause except marital unfaithfulness. That's what He means. So Jesus was being also an expounder of the Ten Commandments. But you can tell how much Israel cares about it. You can tell how much Moses cares about it. You can tell how much... God cares about it. Now, there are two primary reasons that these laws, um, the violation of these laws, carry capital punishment uh, penalty. Number one uh, is that the family structure in Israel is a constituent element of civil society and of ecclesiastical society. In other words, you can't really do anything in Israel Uh, either in warfare or in um, national defense or in the economy. And you can't do anything in the church in worship unless there is discipline through the family. In other words, the family is is an element of both the church and the state, if you will. Now, in Israel, we know those are coterminous. The same people that are in the state are in the church. But there's no way you can carry out the direction of the king or the direction of the priests unless you have heads of households in control of their families. And so uh, you it was an extremely important element. It was the basic element of the social fabric. As an aspect of that, if the state and the church, in this case, if the nation of Israel wants to protect its most vulnerable people, its children, its widows, and its poor. You're going to have to have a family structure in order to do this because that was where they were to be taken care of. 
And most of the time, you can ask yourself the question when you see nations where poor people or women are abused, it's because there's not a healthy family structure in that nation or that culture. So in terms of social justice, the family was essential to Israel. And God above all knows that if you lose your family structure, then the powerful will take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable. And we'll see that in particular with the case of a wife and why her rights were so strongly protected. Because when those obligations by the men fall on the wayside, the women will be the ones who lose out, and then, of course, the children as well. Now, the second reason that you find this, uh, these violations being met with capital punishment is that the idea of marriage, as you know, in the Old Testament as well as the New, is that it is a covenant, berith in Hebrew, which is the same word for God's relationship with his people. Deuteronomy is a covenantal document. It is the document that describes our relationship with God. It tells us what he has done for us in the first four chapters. And then it tells what we're to be doing for him in the subsequent chapters. And then it tells us at the end the blessings and the curses upon those who violate the covenant or keep the covenant. In the same way, marriage is a covenant. And the man and the woman are bound to each other to picture the relationship between God and Israel. We know in the New Testament, Paul works this out in, in more vivid detail. And he describes Jesus Christ as the bridegroom of the church. And so when we marry, he says in Ephesians 5, you've got to play out your part. Because the most important thing about marriage is that it is a drama that is displaying something about God and his love for his people. If you don't like your role, then you can at least enjoy it because you're playing out something that honors and glorifies Christ. If you don't like dying for your wife, well, you can like dying for your wife because you're getting to imitate Jesus Christ. You may think in your mind, she's not worth it, but he's worth it. And you've got a script to read. And that script is that you nurture and you cherish your wife and you treat her as your own body and you're willing to give yourself up for her just as Christ gave himself up for the church because that's the script you have in this play. And this play that we've been given is to demonstrate something about God. And, you know, God could have children any way he wanted to. He could have had them grow off trees like apples. But he had children in this world through a man and a woman facing each other. I guess there's a variety on that now, but unlike the rest of the animal world, when men and women have sex, they actually face each other. No other animals do that. And it's an act of love. And it's through that love and that union together that the earth will be populated. God chose that route. Why? To show something about His intimate love for His people. So you've got a script to read. And if you don't like being faithful to your wife, if you'd like to have several wives, well, that doesn't really matter. Because you've got a script to read. God is faithful to one people. His people. Israel. And now the church is called the new Israel. Because we have not only ethnic Israelites, but we have Gentiles grafted into this new Israel. Those are His people. And our role is to display how He treats His people. Therefore, we don't go whoring around and changing our mind about who we're married to. No, we're devoted to this woman. 
just as God was devoted to us when we sinned against him over and over and over, a la Hosea and Gomer, if you know the story. And Hosea is told to go back and, and let that woman come back home even after she's been whoring out with other men. And, it, and Hosea is told to take her back. Why? Because Hosea is picturing God who has taken us back over and over again. That's the reason Christian men are faithful to their wives. It transcends even our love for her and our desire to protect her. It transcends it because our love for Christ is greater. And Paul says, I speak about a mystery. Christ and the church. So that, that love of Christ and the church is a mystery. And you're playing out the mystery in your script. Now, if this room were full of women, I would say the same thing to them, but they have a different script. And I may say to them, well, you don't like submitting to your husband. I can understand that. Knowing your husband, I wouldn't want to submit to him either. But you chose him. And it doesn't even matter if you made a big mistake when you chose him. Maybe you should have listened to your mother. You know, whatever. Maybe you made a big mistake when you chose him. But you chose him and now you're, you're his and he is yours. And you've got a script to read. It's a divine drama. You're playing out the script. So you're not submitting to your husband because he's smarter than you. I can guarantee you that. You're not, you're not submitting to your husband because he's morally superior to you. My observation is, generally speaking, the women are morally superior to the men. Generally speaking. So we're not suggesting that women are submitting to men because they're morally superior. No, there's only one reason, really. And that is that they're playing out a drama, a mystery, and they've been given a script to read. And they're doing it because they want to picture something for the angels and all humanity and for the pleasure of God. It's all about His pleasure. What does He enjoy? Well, He has created it this way so that He can see His love for the church flowing over and over, multiplying around the world, and being displayed in all of these Christian marriages. Now, that's the reason that you find such strength behind these stipulations. Because, number one, it's an act of social justice that we get this right. And number two, it's an act of worship. Now, you'll notice that everywhere Israel goes, whether in the Old Testament or the New, they are encountering a culture that disagrees with this. And certainly the surrounding Canaanites did not agree with Deuteronomy 22. This is unique to Israel. The surrounding culture had several wives, and when they had them, they didn't have to be devoted to them sexually. In fact, when you go to worship at the, at the temple of Baal and Ashtaroth, Baal and Ashtaroth were getting it on. And that's how we had fertility, when Baal and Ashtaroth were getting it on. So what do you do when you go to the temple? Well, you picture the acts of your gods. And these gods would have sex with other gods indiscriminately and whimsically, capriciously. So when you go to the temple, you go and have sex with the temple prostitutes. There were prostitutes in the temple. So you could go have a nice meal there, and then you could have sex there, and you could say that, you, you could go home and say, I worshiped God today. I worshiped the gods, rather. And that was an act of worship because you were reading your script given to you by the gods. These gods have sex with whomever they want, whenever they want. And they're saying to you, why don't you play out the way that we treat you? If we don't like you, we'll leave you and cause your land to be arid and, and unfruitful. We'll go over here and, and favor these people for a while. And the same thing with Paul in the New Testament when he went from Greek and, and Roman city to another. 
What did he find? The temples. What do they have? Temple prostitutes. Why? Because the, the panoply of gods would relate to each other and to us in a very fickle manner. And by offering uh, sacrifices and by having sex with prostitutes, we would try to, to uh, convince the gods to have favor upon us. And that was because we were acting like they act. But when Christ goes into the Roman Empire, Christ says, no, I am a bridegroom to one people and I'm faithful to her. And therefore, when you do the same thing I'm doing, that is make a covenant, then you be sure that you demonstrate what covenant is. You men who are representing the place of Christ, be sure you represent the character of Jesus Christ in the way that you live out your side of the covenant. Otherwise, it completely breaks down and there's no communication theologically of who God is and how He treats His people. So you can see the background theologically of marriage is extremely important. Marriage is a direct reflection of your theology. Your sex life is deeply theological. It reflects what you believe about God. It always has, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. And it's true around the world today. So if we'll look at this text, I think we'll see first of all uh, in verses 23 through 19, or 23 through 21, I'm sorry, 13 through 21, that God demands faithfulness in covenant marriage, even before the wedding. God demands faithfulness in covenant marriage, even before the wedding. Notice that the complaint in this text is that a woman who is married was not a virgin when she was married. Now, uh, of course, uh, virginity was extremely important in the Old Testament. You were really only available for marriage if you were a virgin, unless you were into leveret marriage. That is, your husband died and therefore his brother would take you into his household and you could be his wife. But otherwise, when you lost your virginity, unless you were widowed, you were really not a candidate for marriage. That's the reason protecting your virginity was extremely important. And here's why virginity was considered important. There are all kinds of reasons, uh, even health reasons. But in, in marriage covenant, the understanding is that you are being faithful to your husband even before you know who he is. So your virginity is an act of covenant faithfulness because you're saying, I will only give myself to someone who has that right. I'll only take from someone else something that is rightly given to me. And since sexual Relations were only to be given in covenant marriage. If you gave it anywhere outside of covenant marriage, it was a huge violation against your husband. Because then he was seen not as the special lover in your life. He was seen as one of the lovers of your life. The way that many people look at God. He's one of the lovers in my life. But if God is the lover of your life, then you preserve your affections for Him. You guard your heart for Him. Since the woman was playing the role of Israel, she must guard her heart, guard her body for him whenever he would be to ask her. So you can see that 
the reason virginity is important is that you are making a statement about your love for your man before you meet him. And it also, it was an honor to your family. Because you can see from the text that if a husband and wife offered their daughter in betrothal, they were making a statement that she was a virgin. If she were not a virgin, they were then misrepresenting her. And they could be guilty for doing so. And she would have dishonored her father's house because, as it says, she would be whoring, whoring in her father's house. So when our 15-year-olds are out there having sex in high school, they are whoring. That's the language that's used by the Old Testament. And they're dishonoring both their father's house and the one with whom they may be married. And, of course, ultimately, God himself. Now, let's look at a New Testament version of all this. Turn, leave your finger there and turn over to page 2308, 1 Thessalonians 4. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, this is the will of God. You want to, you want to know what the will of God for your life is? You know, a lot of... Young men will ask me that sometimes. I just want to know the will of God for my life. I say, oh, I've got the perfect verse for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. Here's His will for you, your sanctification. That's it. Yeah, but uh, what kind of major should I have in college? It doesn't matter. His sanctification. Well, I, should I be married or single? Doesn't matter. His sanctification. Well... Should I live here or somewhere else? Doesn't matter. His sanctification. Should I go into pastoral ministry or get a secondary job? Doesn't matter. His sanctification. That's His will for you. That's His desire for you. Doesn't matter what job, who you marry, where you live, and how many children you have. If you have them, it matters how you treat them. Because that has to do with your sanctification. If you're going to be married, it matters that you're a faithful husband. Because that's your sanctification. If you're a banker, you need to be an intelligent one and a faithful one because that's your sanctification. God's will for you is to be sanctified. Now, when he talks about sanctification, look at the first thing he mentions here. Now, maybe these Thessalonians were particularly red-blooded or something. I don't know. But look, the first thing he mentions is that you abstain from sexual immorality. And I want you to notice the reasons behind it in this text. Verse 4, first of all, only then are you in control of your own body, in holiness, in sanctification, and in honor. Only then are you in control of your own body. If you're out of control with your sexual life, you're going to be out of control in other parts of your life. You've given a toehold to the devil. Secondly, it's important because you need to distinguish yourself from the Gentiles who do not know God. So if you're sleeping around, just like the guy next door, you have no gospel. Your gospel is not good news. It doesn't have any power. It doesn't deliver you from anything. It doesn't make you different at all. All it means is you have to go to church and tithe every week. But it doesn't make you a different person. Your sex life will mark you out. Believe me. The way that you deal with the temptation of pornography will mark you out. Believe me. Your friends will notice. Believe me. And the kind of jokes you make and whether you flirt or don't flirt in the restaurant with just all the guys, it will mark you out. Believe me. 
And the way that you brag about your wife around the women in your office will mark you out. Believe me. All those things mark you out. I, when I talk to our seniors in high school, which I'll do here in a few days, uh, one of my talks is always the sex talk. And I, one thing I say to them is, you know, if you really want to have a good witness in college, if you want to know how to communicate Christ in college, let me tell you one of the first things you need to do. Be sure everybody understands eventually or everyone can see how you live your sex life. You take the Bible seriously, put it into practice, and you will be weird. You will stand out on today's college campus because it's just a wash with sexual immorality. A wash with sexual immorality. The worst thing we can do is send a kid who doesn't know what she believes to college. About the worst thing you can do to a kid. Now, if she knows what she believes and she has convictions, it'll make her stronger. But to go there without direction is a disaster. And she will be washed over, just like everybody else. But if you go there, and you know what you believe, and you stick to it, you will stand out, believe me. And eventually your girlfriends, or your guy friends, will come up to you and say, man, don't you know that by the third date, if you're not getting sex, you need to go on to the next one? And you can just simply say, you know, I've got a different approach on that. What? There's your opportunity to evangelize, right there. It's your best opportunity. Because it is one of the most grievous things that's happening on the college campus and in the culture. It's one of the most important things, check it out, capital punishment, uh, that we have to offer the world. And it is directly linked to your theology. You can give the most exquisite theological lesson through your sex life. And what I say to the kids is, look, don't just... Abstain from sexual immorality. That's, that's important. But don't stop there. That's what my parents would have told me to do. That's what the 50s, 40s and 50s parents told their kids to do. Now, don't you do that. They couldn't tell us why, and that's the reason we did it anyway. So what you want to do, college students, is you want to abstain from sexual immorality, and then you want to know why. And you need to be able to explain it in a winsome way. So if you will abstain and then interpret, now you have witness. And guys, the same is true with us. If we will abstain and interpret, there's only really one reason. You can get a condom that takes care of most of the other reasons. And sometimes, you know, the evangelical Christians like to tell you how often condoms fail, and I'm sure they do. But condoms solve a lot. But condoms don't solve worship. Condoms don't solve loving your neighbors yourself. And so you've got something beyond a condom as an interpretation for your behavior. And here you have it. It's Number one, it is to be in control of yourself in holiness so that you're treating your body as a temple of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, you are distinguishing yourself as a people set apart for God, unlike the Gentiles who just give way to every lust that comes into their hearts. Anything they can get by with is what they do. The only thing they want to know is, what does the law say? The only thing they want to know after that is, do they enforce the law here? Christians are different. And then look at the third reason in verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. What's happening with the sexual immorality, both outside of marriage and in marriage, is that we are doing the exact opposite of love. 
Sex is supposed to be the way in which, one way in which we can demonstrate love and we demonstrate it uniquely to one person. The problem with sexual immorality is it is at the best indifference because we're using someone else's body to get something we want. Now, we men know exactly what we want. You know, let me get my hands on it. I want to look at it. You know, that's what we want. What does the woman want? The woman wants to be cherished. And she gives way. This is the typical psychological profile. It's not the only one. But what, what you see in pornography is a distortion of the typical female mentality. It's not, hey, man, come and get me. It's, I want to be wanted. And so she gives way because you want her in a distorted, perverted way. And in a distorted, perverted way, she responds. So she gets what she wants, and you get what you want, and it's intensely selfish. The object of sexual relations is to love, not to be loved. Whenever we have sexual contact outside of covenantal marriage, it is always selfish. It is never love. That's the reason we have so many sexual dysfunctions in marriage, because people have been practicing sex in an indifferent environment, where they have friends' benefits, where I'll benefit you, you benefit me. And that's the way you develop your mentality about sex outside of the Bible. So then you come to marriage, and you're still looking at sex the same way. Is she still beautiful? Is she thin enough? Does she know how to do it? Is she this, that, and the other? And you're thinking about what you're getting out of it, which is the total opposite of what sex is supposed to be. Sex is supposed to be a service, gentlemen, to the other party. That's the reason that homosexual love couldn't possibly be love. That is a contradiction in terms. Homosexual love is love without sex. Heterosexual love is love without sex. The only way you can have love with sex is if it's a service to the other person. And the only way it can be a service to the other person is if this builds the other person up. It's like a, in the Puritan era, there was, a, there was a young lady one time in her cottage. And she was alone. And the man came in and was wooing her, a single man, trying to take her to bed. And she said, you know, perhaps I'll do that. But she said, first of all, uh, I'd like for you to just hold your finger in the flame of that candle for 60 seconds. He said, what? My finger will, will burn off. And she said, yeah, and you want me to burn in hell. Get out of here. <laughs> Sex outside of marriage is not an act of love. It's an act of despising somebody. Holding them in contempt. Making an object out of them for your purposes. You're not building them up. I always tell men uh, who are dating seriously another woman, look, if this relationship moves forward... And you guys uh, actually move toward marriage. This will be the only time you have to, to treat her like a single man ought to treat her. You don't want other single men groping her or, or disrespecting her boundaries. You want to show her what a single man, how a single man ought to treat her and what she ought to expect out of a single man. So you show her now. You treat her like a queen. And... Queen's servants don't grope the queen. 
So treat her like a queen. And then she'll know what you expect her to expect from other single men. And it's the best groundwork that can be laid for a happy sexual life. This is the reason that studies show that regardless of the religious background, those who wait to have sex in marriage have better sexual lives in marriage by far than those who have been practicing before they got there. And I've had people close to me say, you know, there's no way I'd ever marry a man without living with him first. And the whole culture has done that. And sex life itself goes to pot when we cease to serve one another. That's the reason, of course, that when you do get married, you need to study the unique outlook of a woman and the way that she sees her body and sees your body, the way she listens to words. You don't think about words very much. She thinks about them all the time. And believe me, this is just a hint. Sex, men, includes words. you got to talk? Yeah, because that is what communicates love and affection to a woman. It's very different for a man. She, you know, you're eye gate. She's ear gate. Of course, I, when I'm talking to the women, I explain to them, you know, the way things look do make a difference, you know, to a man. So if you're trying to serve him, this is typically the way he responds. It's the way he feels loved. Your job is not to figure out how you feel loved. Your job, if you're married, is to figure out how she feels loved. So you see from the text of 1 Thessalonians, he's saying that we must love our brothers and sisters. Treat them like brothers and sisters, unless you're married to them, and then it's a married brother or sister. And, you know, with my sisters, we kiss. You know, I kiss her right here. Kiss her right here. But I don't have a kiss that looks like foreplay. Well, so you, with your brothers and sisters, you might kiss them here, you might kiss them here. But let us not mistake any of that for putting a move on somebody. Why? Because that's unkind. You've objectified a subject. You have made an object out of a person for your use. And then, of course, notice fourthly and lastly on this text that this is for the Lord's glory, and the Lord has a stake in it. The Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whatever, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. So it's not a disregard for a woman or disregard for a prostitute, which it is. You're teaching her to make her living that way. Or disregard for your wife. It's disregard for God. Now that is the theological reason have we even gotten started on Deuteronomy 22? Let's turn back there. That's the reason that in Deuteronomy 22, you have such strong language, such strong uh, sanctions attached to the violation of these stipulations because it is an act of social justice and it's an act of worship, the way you live your sex life. Okay. In verses 13 through 19, he says, Husbands must be true to their wives. Here's a case of a man who really despised his wife. And in the culture of the day, what you have to understand in these rules is that God is teaching Israel how to go into their culture. And in their culture, there were women who had to be taken care of, and some of them, more than one, would be married to the same man. Polygamy. 
you'll find that God's intent is expressed in Genesis chapter 2. That a man and a woman are united. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife in covenant. That's the ideal picture. And then what God does with us is He shows us how to clean up a mess. And the mess was that in the world in which Israel lived, as well as in Paul's day, uh, there were several wives for one woman in several cases. And in some cases, it was an act of social justice. You were trying to protect the widow who, having lost her virginity, was no longer really a good candidate for marriage. And so you took her into your house. And it also involved a, a potential sexual relationship. But here's a man who marries a wife and he wants to get rid of her. He doesn't like her. He despises her. So he makes something up about her. And in the process, he, number one, shames her. And God is saying, you shall not shame her and you shall not shame her household. If she were a virgin, if her sexual life were pure, if she was sanctified, don't you blame her a lie on her for your desire to get rid of her. And secondly, he shall protect and provide for her. So that if he's wrong, first of all, whip the daylights out of him. Secondly, you'd think that if a man treated a woman like that, she ought to be granted a divorce. In our day, she would, I suppose. But in that day, once again, social justice. The woman would be left out by herself, unmarriageable. And the socially just thing to do is say... You may, not, you may not like her. She may not be your favorite wife, but you have taken her to yourself. You will now protect her and you will provide for her. And he, they, the husband is to be fined double the amount for a normal bride price, 100 shekels instead of 50. Now, notice here, interesting thing. You've heard the word dowry. In India, the bride's family pays a dowry to the groom. Why? Because the assumption is the groom is doing the bride's family a favor by taking this woman and taking care of her. Notice how Israel switches it. This woman is valuable. She's a virgin in Israel. She's one of God's people, one of His children, His daughters. If you want her, you pay the bride's price. You see how it's reversed? And you'll, as I've said to you before, wherever you go in the world, you'll find one effect of the gospel that's very clear. You'll see the women are taken care of. Where you see the absence of the gospel, almost in every case, you'll see abuse of women. Wasn't it interesting that CNN had up the other day, uh, you know, the women were asking for a voice in the reformation of the government in Egypt. And certain statistics came up that uh, women were unemployed at three times the rate of unemployed men. That women had illiteracy rates that were three or four times the men. Why? Well, because when you don't have a gospel you're not going to have equality and caring for the weaker gender, if you will, physically weaker gender. But here you see protection is demanded. And that's the reason that in Malachi chapter 2, it's an act of violence against a woman to divorce her. Because you are putting her out and you're exposing her and making her vulnerable. You're ripping her out of her covenant uh, relations. And this is the reason that you find in Ephesians 5... Just the opposite of this behavior. Instead of hating her, you must learn to devote yourself to her and love her even when she's not acting lovable. You know, you can almost make a woman lovable by loving her. You know that? You pray for her. You serve her. 
And you'll find out how much you start loving her. It's when you withhold your prayers, you withhold your service, your acts of service, that you start despising her. Now, you're provoked, I know. She didn't have sex with you last night. She didn't get up to fix your breakfast. You've got all your provocations. But actually, when you really start despising her is when you start withholding your acts of service and love toward her. So you'll find, first thing you should do, if you're having troubles in your marriage today, start praying for your wife and just put it in your calendar. You're going to pray for her, pray for her, pray for her. And then you're going to find out something to do for her without expecting any response from her, something that's special to her. And you just start doing that. Put that in your calendar. Don't tell her it's in your calendar, for heaven's sakes. But put it in your calendar. And just do it, and you do it, and you do it, and you do it. And you're not demanding any response. Now you're acting like Jesus. You're loving her. You're praying for her, which he does for us. You're doing for her, which he does for us. And you're not expecting an equivalent response, which he never gets from us. Now you're, you're going to find that you're loving and caring for your wife. And you're going to find that she becomes more lovable to you in all of her weakness. So the first rule was then that God demands faithfulness in covenant marriage even before the wedding. And wives, uh, B, verses 20 and 21, wives must be true to their husbands. So she, she better be a, a virgin. If not, then she will be stoned at the doorframe of her own family's household. So sexual immorality was a capital offense. Because of social justice and because of the theology behind it. It was the equivalent of choosing another God. And you know there's capital offense if you go in and preach to the people that they should worship another God. And that's what sexual immorality is doing. It is demonstrating that sermon. That's the reason for the sanction. Notice in verse 22 that God demands faithfulness in covenant marriage after the wedding as well. Roman numeral 2. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. You shall purge the evil from Israel. So if a woman is married, you have sex with her, that's adultery. You are wooing her into the adulterous relationship, and therefore you are an adulterer. Thirdly, verses 23 through 27, God demands faithfulness in covenant betrothal. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and has sex with her, they're both guilty. Because if she had cried out for help, of course, some of them might say, I said, help, help. No, if she really is in the city and she cries out for help, she'll get help. So if they had sex in the city, isn't that interesting? If they had sex in the city, they're both guilty of adultery because she could have had some help. And she's only betrothed. But if in the open country a man has sex with a woman, and notice that he seizes her. See, that's rape. He seizes her. There's some force behind it. They're in the country. Even if she screams out for help, she's not going to get any. Then she's not stoned, only him. Now notice here the meaning of betrothal. Betrothal, of course, is an arranged marriage. Uh, between the groom's father or the groom and the bride's father. Arranged marriages. And she could be betrothed way before she had her first menstrual cycle. Usually she'd be a little girl when she was betrothed. And uh, this is what we would call engagement. But notice, 
that a biblical engagement is the equivalent of marriage in terms of your sexual fidelity. Notice uh, in verse 24 that he says he violated his neighbor's wife. Wife. They're only engaged. Now, folks, this is, this is what I tell engaged couples today. You don't have a biblical engagement. A biblical engagement takes a divorce to break. Let me tell you why. Remember who was engaged in the New Testament? Joseph and Mary. You remember what Joseph wanted to do when Mary got pregnant? Outside? He knew it wasn't himself who got her pregnant. He was going to divorce her quietly. Because he was a decent man. He wasn't going to put her up to public shame. But he had to divorce an engaged, betrothed virgin. He couldn't just drop her off or break, have a so, break it off socially. Some of you are old enough to remember, uh, in rare cases, there would be a legal suit for breach of promise when a man stated his intentions and then failed to fall through the marriage. I mean, that just shows, that's showing my age. I can barely remember that kind of language. That used to be common. If you got engaged, you were betrothed. And it took a, a, a legal act to break it. Because you had given your word. Now, in the Old Testament, all you needed in order to have, let's say, legitimate sexual relations is a betrothal. There are two lines that make a covenant marriage. One is the betrothal line, the promissory line, and the other is the physical line. That's the reason we call the physical act on the honeymoon night the consummation of the marriage, of the promise. So if you've made a promise, you've made a deal, and all the arrangements are out there, all you need to do is to have sex anytime you want. And normally, of course, you're going to wait until she has her first menstrual cycle, maybe a year after that. That's the reason that the girls will be married at 13 or 14 in Israel. Uh, in the time of the Lord Jesus. And a perfect illustration of this, you remember when, when Sarah wanted a wife for Isaac and she said to Abraham, I don't want any of these Canaanite girls. I don't like any of them. Now let's send her back home and get her, uh, send him back home and get him a real wife from our family. So they send the servants off back to their hometown. And there, of course, you know, they, they meet Rebecca. She's a perfect woman. You know the story. And they, they make all the deals. And the parents say, well, Rebecca, do you want to go? And she says, yes. And they say, well, do you want to go now or later? And she says, well, I'll just go now. And they give all the gifts, make all the promises. They promise Isaac's protection of her. And then she gets on the camel, makes her way back to the Holy Land. She sees Isaac off in the distance, and she says, who's that? And they say, well, that's Isaac. So she drops the veil out of modesty. Next thing you read, they go in the tent. <laughs> now, where, what happened to the wedding ceremony and the exchange of vows? They were already exchanged. So the promissory line was there. The problem with sex outside of marriage is there's sex without the promise. That is no social justice. You haven't given her your name. You haven't split your estate. You haven't given her a home to live in. You haven't, told, you haven't shown publicly that you're her man and you will protect her and provide for her. You're just getting sex for yourself. There's no promise. There's no integrity. So you notice here that when you're betrothed, really betrothed, the promises are given. So in the American system... Here's when you're betrothed. At the beginning of the worship service, I say, 
John, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? And will you pledge your faithfulness to her in all love and honor and all duty and service and all faith and tenderness to live with her and cherish her according to the ordinance of God in the holy bond of marriage? Will you? I will. Woman, will you do the same? I will. Who gives this man to be married to this woman? I do and her mother. Boom. Now you're betrothed. Now you step on up and take the covenant vows. And that night you consummate. So our betrothal and our consummation are the same day in the American system. Therefore, if you're engaged, you have a social engagement. Don't act as though you have a betrothal. You don't have one. The legal foundation is not set. The social justice is not set. The glory of God is not going to be displayed. You must still treat her as a single man. And everything that goes with that. You could get run over by a truck. And she was never engaged to you really biblically. Now lastly, Roman numeral 4, or next to last. God demands faithfulness in covenant obligations. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, there's the bride price, and she shall be his wife, there's the marriage. Why? Because he has violated her. How has he violated her? He has switched the order. He has consummated an arrangement he didn't have. He took advantage of her. So how does he fix it? He now puts the promise in. Gentlemen, here's, the, here's something we can learn from the Old Testament, I think, very starkly in verses 28 and 29. And you'll see it also in Exodus 22. I've listed the verses there. All the sex that's going on here, especially when it's sex with a virgin, here's what I think men actually ought to do. If one of our 16-year-old sons has sex with a girl, the first thing that ought to happen is that he ought to be taken right to the Bible and shown what happened. Son, whether you realize it or not, you just took an obligation upon yourself. Whether you realize it or not, you now owe this woman your estate. Whether you realize it or not, you owe this woman an offer of marriage. Or let me say, you owe it to her dad. So I'll go with you. Let's go right over there and talk to her dad and tell him what happened. And you can give your girlfriend warning that you're coming. And let's go over and have a talk. And let's get the pastor involved. And let's see what we ought to do here. Because you have made an obligation. You have obligated yourself. You didn't just have sex. You obligated. That's what the Texas say. You, you, you obligated yourself. So you go over there. The pastor comes. And uh, actually the way it ought to happen, I think, maybe the first thing is go to the pastor. Get a little coaching. And here's what the pastor ought to say. If you're the man, you're the 16-year-old man, here's what you need to do is put your life on the line. You violated her. You took something that didn't belong to you. And you obligated yourself. And you need to make a sincere offer. Now, I'm going to talk with the bride's family. I'm the pastor talking. I'm going to talk with the bride's family too. And I'm going to find out if this would be a wise marriage or not. At 16 years of age, one would wonder. So I get with the bride's family. And he says, you know, that no-count boy, you know, well, look, uh, you don't have to accept his offer. His obligation is to make a sincere offer. You're not obligated to accept it. Or sometimes I'll actually say to the father, you know, for heaven's sakes, don't accept that man's offer. <laughs> I'll go over here to the man and say, now you've got an offer over here. And I go to the woman and say, don't take it, no matter what. But the man's obligation 
is to make the offer. I think that's, that's what we're being taught here. This is the tragedy of the sexual immorality that's going on in Memphis, is that men have obligated themselves all over this city and haven't stepped up to the plate. They're just grabbing for all that they can take from other people and haven't put their estates on the line. And they've surrendered their role to nurture and protect people. And what, really what they're doing now is ripping people off and raping them. They're not caring for them and loving them. That's the real tragedy, is the unfulfilled obligations of men here and around the world. Lastly, God demands faithfulness and covenant abstentions. A man shall not take his father's wife. And, of course, that would not be a man's natural mother. That would be his stepmother or a second or third wife. Uh, it's not, not your mother, but it's a woman who had had sex with your father and been in marriage with your father. You do not take her so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. That just basically means your father's been naked with her and you dishonor him when you do that. You'll find these regulations in Leviticus for different types of relations where there's not to be sexual relations inside. It's, it's incest in a certain way uh, within the family. And you dishonor your family and you dishonor your father when certain things like that are done. So obviously, sex is to be regulated because it is an issue of social justice and it is an issue of worship. So I say, men, go be socially just and go worship God with your sex life. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the way that you made us. And in this room, you made us men. And we're thankful for that. We like being men. And we confess that sometimes our, our hormones determine our behavior more than your word does. And for this, we are profoundly sorry. We are profoundly grateful that the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of our sins. And in the discussion of this text today, every man in every chair and on this platform stands guilty as charged. We have all fallen short of the seventh commandment. Every one of us. And were it not for the blood of Christ, we would be damned and stoned. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking the nails in your hands and in your feet and the spear in your side so that we would not be stoned and destroyed forever. And you have set us free. And you love us just as much as you do the virgins of Israel because of the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. And so we pray today, as we would every day, as new men who are forgiven and made new every day, that we may go out and live new lives. Help us to start right where we are, with regret for the past only because it dishonored you, not because it dishonored us. Because we are highly honored to wear the clothing of Jesus Christ as we leave here today. And out of gratitude for all that you've done for us, enable us to rededicate ourselves today to a life that will bring justice and mercy to the people around us and a life that will bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, the bridegroom of the church. And we pray in his name. Amen. God bless you.
very patient. 